Uh, we're on a, a series of uh, people who met with Jesus. We're going to look at the Canaanite woman. So if you've got a Bible, can you turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 15? And we're going to read verses 21 uh, to 28. I'll I just tell you that um, I was going to sin today. And uh, the Lord has delivered me from it. Because last time I preached, the, uh, the, the Andrew Harmon uh, fell asleep. So I had it in my mind that I'd have my mobile phone with me today and I was going to put it in my pocket and what I was going to do was mid-sermon, if he went to sleep, I was going to film him. <laughs> so, and I'd made up my mind in regard to this thing and such was the Lord's graciousness towards the Harmon family that Andrew is not well so he didn't have to fall asleep and I didn't have to sin. So, uh, but just in case that you might know, the mobile phone is still close, just in case you want to participate. Okay, Matthew chapter 15. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but... He did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right, is it not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? And she said, Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then the Lord answered her, O woman, uh, great is your faith. Be done to you as do you desire. And her daughter was healed uh, com- instantly, completely. Uh, just a word in regard to the, uh, the word that was given to us in regard to rescue and salvation. Um, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Um, sometimes uh, if you need rescuing, you have to cry out like this lady did, Oh Lord, have mercy on me. So if you want to know um, how to become a Christian, can I suggest that you take the stance that she said, where she just said, Lord, help me. That's your stance. And then I believe the Lord will meet you. That's just a digression. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, It was not unusual, was it, for Jesus to be very straight towards uh, some people. So, for example, uh, religious leaders uh, who opposed him, he called them nicely hypocrites. Uh, Once called them the blind leading the blind. Uh, Called them lovingly snakes and whitewashed sepulchres or whitewashed tombs. And it's interesting that, um, was he angry about them as people? No, no. Was he bothered about the fact that they'd lost a relationship with their father and that they were stopping people coming to him? Yes, that was the the reason. They hindered other people coming. He also showed his anger, didn't he, in the temple. Uh, He goes to the temple, uh, finds that it's full of money changers, and he turns over the tables of the money changers. And it is a little bit one of those moments of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But this was his father's house and he knew it as a, as a house of prayer. So it was a righteous anger that grew up. But this account 
before us is probably unique because it seems to have an apparent harshness that Jesus seems to demonstrate, particularly towards a lady who comes to him with humility and is sincere and is asking him for help. His attitude seems to be, I think, shocking in regard to her. But once uh, that you read it, you realize that what he's up to is something more than that he's seen. And that is the case often with us all. There's something underneath that Jesus wants to get into, into our hearts. So we uh, join the story with Jesus withdrawing. He's withdrawing from Galilee uh, to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were, were prominent. They were large cities on the coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, they were then known in the area of Phoenicia, uh, Lebanon today, And there are several factors that caused Jesus to walk to these places. He actually walked 50 miles to this place. So he'd he'd walk quite a distance. I don't know how far you can do 50 miles in, how long it will take you. Give you an idea of how long it took Jesus. Some of the problems of him moving to this area were because the people were flocking to him for the wrong reasons which just shows that we can do that in regard to church and in regard to God and Jesus and the kingdom of God. We can, we can gather to it for the wrong reasons. They are right in recognizing that this man has miraculous power and that he's marked out as the Messiah, but they're wrong about why they want to gather to him and identify with him. Because in John chapter 6 and verse 15, after feeding the 5,000, it says they intended, they intended to come and take him by force and make him to be their king. So he withdrew. I think it also, it's just really simple as to why he withdrew. I think he just was, he needed a bit of rest. He just needed a little bit of rest. We had an incident last night, in, uh, to, uh, the other night before our family, uh, in our family, which these, these days is just Callie and I, and I'd realised that I had not communicated with Callie some of the things that had happened over the last three weeks. That actually what had happened is that I'd communicated with Steve and Phil and Callie was hearing some of these things through them and going, I haven't got a clue what you're on about. And I just said, to, and what had happened is that over the last three weeks that I'd, I'd been in, uh, uh, let me think, uh, we'd been in Darlington for several days, we'd been uh, in Manchester for several days, I'd been in Northampton for several days, I'd come back from all of those things straight into a meetings and carried on. So yesterday I had to sit down with my diary and I had to say to my wife, I am very sorry, I should have communicated all this with you. I just had gone. I don't know whether any of you feels like, it just felt like it was a train that was just kept going. Where, and I was thinking, I don't know whether you're like me, I was thinking, when I get to Christmas, we'll just stop a bit. <laughs> but my wife stopped me well before that and sat me down over a cup of coffee and needed to know where I was. The, I think the disciples were just literally in this. If we put some of the events, let me try and do I'll read this to you so you get an idea. Uh, that the reason they'd gone across the Sea of Galilee uh, towards Bethesda some weeks before, but the crowd had spotted them and had followed them on foot 
So they'd gone across the sea. The crowd had spotted them and said, okay, we'll get round here to them. He ended up multiplying the loaves and the fishes in a miraculous feeding of the multitude. He ended up teaching those multitudes and he tries to get away from them then. Then what happens? There's a storm that night. The night that you want a a bottle of wine and a DVD, there's a storm. And during which the disciples are on the sea. What they are doing out there on, on a day like that, we don't know. But during it, Jesus walks on the Sea of Galilee and rescues the disciples. Immediately after uh, reaching the shore near Capernaum, people find him. And it says they brought all their sick to him and they begged him to touch, just let them touch the hem of his garment. And now we move on. He and they are just shattered. So they've come here because of that. Then, another reason is the scribes and the Pharisees from Jerusalem, they show up. And Jesus is just one of those moments where he thinks, have I really got to teach this bunch again? Do, do I really have to go over all of this stuff that they are not understanding again? And he does. He says, okay, let's do this. And he tries to show them about a moral and uh, spiritual defilement, gets quite deep into it to do with hand washing and saying it's not about that, it comes from the heart. And you just feel that sense of, you know, if they hadn't have been here, I wouldn't have had to teach them and all that sort of thing. But he's teaching them and he thinks, oh, okay, I'll just do it anyway. And, this, and Jesus in the end, after this sort of episode, thinks we just need to leave the country. We just need to book in with Thompson's and have a week away. Something like that. So they book into Thompson's in their day, which means walk. And they go 50 miles. And, and, what, and they start to walk. And it says this. It, it, Mark tells us this. It says, they entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he couldn't be hidden. Extraordinary. He wants to be hidden. He wants a rest. He wants a meal. And they could not be hidden. Now, you would have thought that they're tied and you would have thought that modern paparazzi and all that sort of stuff is all very new to our day. No, this is happening even then. There's nothing new under the sun. Jesus can't even find rest in a foreign country. And amongst all this, in the middle of all this, when he just wants to flee and get away from it all, there turns up a Canaanite woman with a big problem. So now you understand perhaps why she's a little bit... No, she isn't. No. Don't go there yet. Okay? But in the middle of this... Now, I don't know whether your tendency would be... Could you see me three weeks on Wednesday when I've just recovered? But that's not the heart of Jesus. The woman is called Canaanite uh, by Matthew, but it refers really to uh, a, a culture... Uh, which she lived. Mark tells us actually she was a Greek woman uh, who was born in uh, Syrian Phoenicia. Find that in Mark chapter 7. The most likely facts are, just so that you know what we're dealing with, is that she was probably Greek by race, she was Phoenician by country, and she was Canaanite by culture. Is that true of today's people? Uh, we, we have occasionally uh, walked down the town in Wrexham and sometimes thought, 
Where am I? Because, as, you know, where we've been, born in Wolverhampton, led a church uh, in, uh, in Sussex, led another church in Staffordshire, now in Wrexham. And Callie and I sometimes go, we, 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 we go to places and we think, no, that's not here in Wrexham. So we are the typical Canaanite, uh, Phoenician, cultured, mixed up. And actually, that's the world, folks, that we now live in. The world that we now live in is a lot. Just talking to some of the students, some of them have just said to us things like, actually, we would like to stay here. What does that mean? It means that we, we might have some Chinese that now live in here. I had some uh, uh, guys that I was brought up with at school. Where's, uh, uh, where's our Indian guys? Hi, Mikhail. I was brought up with, with Midland-speaking Indian guys. Now, my, if you talk to Silas after a little while, Silas does the, the head wobbling bit. We know he's from India. He did it on Thursday night and Wednesday night in our house. Once he got passionate, the head went. Uh, and, and he went, because I know he's Indian. But I was actually brought up in, a, in an environment where the Indians spoke a stronger Midland accent than I did, which you think is bad. But you should have seen some of these guys. It was a mixture And that is the way the world, it's the way in which people will now enter into the church. They won't be from one nation and one background. They will be from many. And that we need to wake up church to this, what it's like. And she reveals, even though she's from these foreign cultures, she reveals a certain knowledge of Jesus. But the woman comes to Jesus where Jesus is. Let me just say to you, that's the best way to help you, to go where Jesus is. Go and find where Jesus is. He will meet you. It's important. She cries out, O Lord, Son of David. And it's difficult, if not impossible, to discern what actually she means by this. She certainly recognizes that he's no ordinary person. Lord was what you would give to uh, to somebody if you want to honour them or respect them. So we would go, Steve. Oh, Lord, Steve. Because we honour him, don't we? You've all gone at that point. You know, oh. We could do it better because Peter's better dressed than Steve. We go, oh, Lord Peter. So that fits much better, doesn't it? Yeah. And you all go, yes, where's Lord Peter? <laughs> so that was the thing, yes. Bad, bad, bad illustration with Steve. Except that I've seen him, I've seen him in, in the, the dicky bow and dress suit. Have you seen that? That is definitely, oh Lord Stephen, you would not believe it. So, question is, but have you seen Belinda in the long dress? She is far better looking than Steve in the, no, we won't go there. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so they will look magnificent. So, oh Lord, was the thing. Uh, son of David seems to uh, demonstrate that she knows that, that the person in front of her is a descendant of, of King David. But when you put them together, Lord, uh, son of David, there is some sort of mystery that's going on here. Because when you put them together, together they actually mean the Messiah. So she was standing in front of this person saying, you are the Messiah, which is really interesting because here's this person mixed up from a culture, mixed up from a background, not knowing much at all. And she comes to God and she says, no, you are the Messiah. 
you know the disciples hadn't got that? The scribes and the Pharisees hadn't got that. But this woman from a broken culture and a broken background come and stood and said, you are the Messiah. Do you know there's hope for our nation? Do you see that? There's hope for our nation. We must not despair in the context in which we're living in because actually in the context that we're living in, God is revealing himself to people and showing himself on who he is. It's wonderful. Breaks into this lady. But it's really interesting. Then does she come and say, excuse me, mate, would you help me with my little problem? No, she comes in awe of him. Not knowing anything other than, I think this is the Messiah. She comes in awe of, oh Lord, son of David. And I just think sometimes we need to get back to awe a little bit. Back to awe, the awe of God. Not be casual with the presence of God, but be in awe. And she stands and she asks for mercy. Oh Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, people don't ask for mercy unless they've lost hope. And she had lost hope, and there was nothing she could do about her situation. This was a desperate woman that stood in front of this one person and said, Will you have mercy on me? Will you have mercy? I believe there are a lot of people that have lost hope. But we have a message, folks. A wonderful message that God can meet hopelessness with mercy. This is what we preach. That's why we should preach the gospel next week. That's why we should keep on preaching the gospel. Because when hopeless people come in, we have a message. What on earth, in, what on earth is, does this world have? What can it offer? It doesn't offer hope, does it? But we can offer hope. We can extend mercy and hope into hopeless situations. So before I just talk about the dogs and the rejection and all that sort of stuff, I just want to just reflect a little bit on mercy. Because I don't know whether you've felt like this. I I got myself into a bit of a mess with this. So this is the brief bit of mess. Because I actually, I mean, you're all going to shout this out. Mercy, in a minute, mercy is generally seen as twinned alongside grace. Grace and mercy. Uh, because that's the way they appear in the Bible. But, we, but grace often first. Mercy seems to, but I think that mercy seems to live a little bit in grace's shadow. And uh, how many churches do you know that have their name grace in it? I could reel off a lot. And then I actually thought about how many churches that have the name mercy in it. They're probably all in Africa or something like that, but they're certainly not here or India, or somewhere like that. But I couldn't think of it. I could think of churches with names, with, mercy, with grace in it. I could actually think only of institutions with mercy in it. So I could think of hospitals, or care homes, or missions. Which is really interesting. So what's the difference between grace and mercy? It's simple. God speaks... Uh, of God's goodness towards those who only deserve punishment. So we, we, grace is getting what we don't deserve, yeah? In simple forms. 
The focus is the sin on our own life and the righteousness on Jesus' life and the exchange that goes on. He gets our sin. We, we, get, we get his righteousness. That's grace. But mercy is slightly different because mercy speaks of God's goodness towards those who are in situations of misery and distress. That those who have got themselves into what theologians call a pitiful situation. That's where they have got themselves into. And uh, I love God because God's description of himself is that he says that he is rich in mercy. He's rich in it. He's loaded with it. That's what you can know this morning, middle section. For You can know this if you are in a situation, which I'm going to try and describe in a second, that, that requires mercy, God is loaded with it. The, I, love, um, I love this, but please bear with me. John Piper says this, he is, he is infinitely compassionate towards the miserable. <laughs> I have a tendency to be like that. So he's just love that. He's rich in mercy. But, but, but in, we have lost the miserable thing, isn't it? Mis- miserable is that I miss the X factor results. Now, miserable actually is from misery, which is a consequence of the life that you are living. So things have happened in your life, and it means that your life has become misery, and therefore you are miserable. Miserable isn't that I didn't get the bargains in the, the new Morrisons uh, because I was late. That's not misery, okay? Misery is because you are in a different situation where things have, in their circumstances have turned against you. There, We need to recover some biblical words, don't we? Obviously upset Tim, but carry on. <laughs> Paul said, 1 Timothy 1 verse 13, I've upset most of that. One, one Harmon goes to sleep, the other Harmon walks out in a sermon. Plenty Pardon? There's plenty left. Yeah, there is. <laughs> There's more to come. Yeah, okay. Next time I preach, the whole family's doing a march out. Anyway. Paul, in 1 Timothy 1 verse 13, he said this. Don't you love this? Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, he became a follower of Jesus because of his great mercy. Mercy broke the heart of Paul. That's what happened. God's mercy overwhelmed him. Why should you be merciful to me? And it broke his heart. And he became a follower. And he said, look, he said, I'm a blasphemer. I'm a persecutor. I'm an insolent man. And mercy broke me. Do you know how to allow your character to be molded by God? It is to be, to be tender to the mercy of God. Now then, the Old Testament and the New Testament word uh, in Greek is the Greek word chesed. There you go. It's frequently translated loving kindness and loyal love. And if you examine lots of chesseds, it's not cheese, but chessed, you will find there are five different ways in which it, mercy comes. And this lady was saying, Lord, have chessed on me. And 
what we can know with these five is that these are ways in which we experience God's mercy. So that it isn't just a theological understanding, it is literally an experience that comes upon us. When chessed mercy breaks into our life, it has an effect. So here's the five. On all of these five, this is what God wants to do. He wants to break it. Was that me? (laughs) Was it me? That's Andrew Harmon. Somebody has texted Andrew Harmon to go, don't do it to my dad if he falls asleep. Okay. Oh, no, it was me. I took the mickey last week to the musicians. Whilst in the... And now I am humbled. (laughs) Okay. So the idea of this this chess-head mercy is quite simply this. It is an experience. It's something you can know. See... So here's the first one. When suffering the pain of unfair and unjust circumstances and consequences, Genesis chapter 13, verses 21 to 23, tells us that Joseph was dumped in the end in a dungeon because of false accusation. And it says that God's chesed came to him. How did his mercy come? It tells us the the influence is this. It relieved him of bitterness. How do you allow bitterness in your heart to go? You cry out for help to God for mercy. Mercy comes and it melts the bitterness. It is an experience of the power of God that comes to you. Secondly, when we're enduring the grief of death. Ruth chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 offers, uh, offers the comforting words of Naomi to her grieving daughter-in-law shortly after the premature deaths of both their husbands. So not just one husband, two. She asks the Lord for mercy. She asks the Lord for grieving mercy. And she is asking the Lord for grieving mercy because she has got angry in regard to the loss of these two men. I've lost my husband, I've lost my son-in-law, and, and I'm pretty angry about this. And we hear that often, time and time again. I was angry about the Lord. But she overcomes that and she says more than that. She comes against it and she says, Lord, this is within me. So Lord, would you grant me mercy? Would you grant us mercy? And the mercy comes and melts the anger. If you are still angry with the Lord, it is because the Lord hasn't met you yet with, your, with his mercy. And you are resisting that melting that comes Through the mercy of God. Thirdly, when we're struggling with the limitations of disability. Sometimes the issue of disability can appear to be very unfair. Why? Has been the huge question, hasn't it? Why? Why did this happen to us? Why why did this happen to me? I've met with people that have often sometimes felt that they've been punished by God. It is entirely wrong in regard to that. 
Well, there's a lovely description in 2 Samuel chapter 9 where David experiences mercy towards a guy called Methuselah. Him, that one. And he was lame in both feet. And he was a relative of David's. And David allowed him at a place at his table for the rest of his life. And when describing why he was going to do this, he said, because mercy has come upon me. Mercy. How do you live with this? You live with it because the mercy of God grants you the ability to love and to care and to break into and to create security. David didn't go, actually, I'm the king. I don't really want disabled people sitting at my throne. He could have done, couldn't he? Don't want that. No. But isn't it lovely that David, out of the line of David, let's just put this in a, a, a theological context so that, we, so that Phil Harmon can sit on the edge of his chair and just get delighted for a little bit. Here's the, here's the throne of David. And where, where, what's at the foot of the throne of David? People with severe disabilities. Isn't God wonderful? With his heart. Doesn't it show where God wants all people to dwell? There is a place at the throne of God with people who are struggling with life. Fantastic, isn't it? So let's not make it too intellectual, guys. Let's make sure that we we do all this well. Fourthly, uh, physical pain, Job chapter 10, verse 12. The Lord's uh, uh, giving Job um, chessed again, enabling him to survive in intense pain. So how do you live with pain? How do you live with the physical pain? How do you live with it? No, some of you will have to live with pain all of your life. Some of you will not be healed. Some of you next week will be. Some of you the, the week after that at the same time will respond for healing and you'll watch somebody healed and the person next to you will not be healed. And you think, hello. Paul himself had to live with the thorn in his flesh for the rest of his life. And, and mercy comes upon us, enabling us to live with a, a magnificent relationship with God in pain. Lastly, Guilt. There is such a power in guilt, isn't there? Don't you think that? Don't you think guilt destroys us? You know, the, the quiet moments, the, the known things, the living with the known things. <sighs> All of these you can sort of understand till you get this one. It is so destructive, guilt, isn't it? Psalm 32 and verse 10, 51 and 1, David speaks. And he says this. He says that, he tells us in the Psalms, he said, Mercy, Chesed, relieved my misery from the guilt. Was he a sinner? Yes. Was he an idiot? Yes. Should he have been doing other things? Yes. Of course he should. Did it ruin his life for the rest of his life? No. Because he came and he allowed mercy to come and relieve him from guilt. And many of you carry guilt. And God wants to just come and touch you afresh and relieve you 
of the agony of guilt. Did this Syrophoenician woman understand all of this? No. Of course she didn't. She didn't say, I'm here because of the five theological positions of whatever. No, she didn't. Of course not. Did she come because she was desperate? Yes. And that's why we should all respond, shouldn't we? Should all respond because actually we've come to the end of self. The end of self actually is the beginning of God. You can't, that's enough really. So she apparently understood a little bit about mercy. She doesn't come demanding God. So easy to demand things of God, isn't it? Please do this for me. Rather, she begs for mercy. Is that how we come? So now we get to uh, the shorter bit, but uh, she begs for help. Uh, The woman cries out, My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. We don't know the exact uh, symptoms. We do know through other um, parts in the Bible that you can find that, that, uh, uh, that demonic uh, oppression caused people to be blind, caused them to be mute, caused them to be violent, caused them to be suicidal, uh, and a number of all sorts of other serious different things. We don't know. We just know that, that she says, uh, my daughter is severely oppressed with a demon. The, if you want to know the Greek words for this, it is extraordinary. Cruelly and wickedly and terribly possessed by a demon. That's shocking, isn't it, for your daughter? Wow. Can you imagine the impact on this mom right now? She's not saying, um, I'd like to, you know, can you help me, uh, Lord? Uh, just with this minor case of depression or anxiety that we're going through right now, she is confessing in front of a crowd, my daughter is cruelly, wickedly and terribly possessed. That's a big thing for a mom, isn't it? Huge thing. The story is not unique because there are loads of people that came and beg for Jesus' mercy and received it. But at this point, it takes an unexpected turn. Because at first, Jesus ignores her. Matthew tells us in verse 23 that he did not answer her word. This seems uncharacteristic, don't you think, about Jesus? He who was generally responsive, who generally felt, who picked up little children and talked to them, who engaged, like last week, strangers like Zacchaeus and said, I'll come to your house for tea, who seems to ignore this woman entirely. You know, sometimes the hardest response to receive is no response at all. Been there? Been there and you've been before the throne of God? Time after time after time again. You seem to have prayed the same prayer time after time again. And it appears as if Jesus is ignoring you. She got the silent treatment. What do I do when Jesus is silent? Those are huge questions, aren't they? 
what is interesting is that the silence provokes a response of godly proportions in the disciples. Yet again, they, they surge into the fore and show their mettle as great followers of Jesus and say to Jesus, why don't you send her away? She's crying out after us. The woman is an irritant, a nuisance, a pain. She's driving me mad. That's a, what a, How can these guys... Can you see what a miracle is that these guys stand up in such a... and have the effect that they're in? Look, this woman comes. She's in real mess. No, she's a pain. But, the, but what the, the, the disciples didn't understand, that actually Jesus was, was going underneath here. He wasn't just ignoring her. There was something else that was going on. He is speaking into faith. I think undoubtedly he is using also to show the disciples about faith because he knows what they will have to face. He wants them to see the difference between genuine and superficial. He wants us to see. Isn't it true we can all have superficial faith? But persevering faith, battle-winning faith, is something else, isn't it? This is where he was wanting to go. So their suggestion uh, to send the woman away uh, creates another response from Jesus. He declines their help because she's not Jewish, verse 24. Not only does he, does he ignore her, when they sort of are drawn to, uh, when, he, when they draw her to his attention for the wrong reasons, he says, ah, she's, I only deal with the lost sheep of Israel. This woman, to her face, you love, don't qualify. Cool. And I find the statement, conf- do you not find the statement confusing? I do. I have to admit to that. There's no doubt that, uh, because there's no doubt that Jesus' earthly ministry was to Jewish people because he never went to Rome, he never went to Athens, he never went to Alexandria or any other major Gentile city apart from, well, he is in a Gentile place now. And yet he said such things and and the Apostle John would repeat some of the things he said. So how does this match up with him saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son? What's going on here? John would repeat, wouldn't he, in his book later on that Jesus would say this, he said this whilst on earth, our sins are not only ours, but also the sins of the whole earth. That's what Jesus said. How does this match up then to what's going on? There are some mysteries here that are just not easy to solve. They're just not. After all, didn't he heal the servant of a centurion Didn't he offer water to a Samaritan woman? And now he refuses this woman because she's not in the house of Israel. It must be a huge blow. You come with your request from God. And God says, no, it's not not for you. You live in I-Town. It's not for you. God... God blesses the Wrexham people, but Flint, not for you. Flint, that's how it appears, isn't it? Let's just start from basics. (laughs) None of us qualify for God's help. None of us. What made you qualify for God's help? 
Where, where did you think that you could make yourself qualify from then? We don't, none of us qualify for God's mercy and grace. We're all undeserving in regard to that. Let's start from there. That's the best place to start. Then we understand grace and mercy a bit more. None of us qualify. None of us do. But the woman came, and I love this, she knelt before him and cried out, Lord, help me. Are you a a give up the first hurdle person or a give up the second hurdle person? Lord, help me, she says. Despite the fact that his mission appears to be Israel and she's a Canaanite, she does not react. Oh, we're so reactionary, aren't we, when things don't work out as we want them to do. We lose our focus and we, we get distracted and we move away from the central uh, thing that we're, we're, we're on. So distracted, aren't we? But she's not distracted by the circumstances. She gets down on her knees. She's not going to, to let any atom of resentment enter into her heart. Not going to do it. She's only got one thing that she knows. Well, two things. He's my only hope, and I have a really rough old daughter here. Those are the only things. So she comes and she kneels at his feet. Actually, the Bible describes it better than that in the Greek. It says she lies at his feet and holds his feet. Do you know what that means? It means that if he walked, she was going with him. There's some, there's some Old Testament stories which we'll hear about later. Isn't that one? I will not let you go. That's the position that you... I will not let resentment come into my heart. I will not let bitterness come in. I will lie prostrate on my hand and I will grab hold of your feet. A posture is humility, if not worship. Certainly determination. And how does Jesus react to having a lady on your leg. Well, he puts up another barrier. This is the barrier. He says, he, I'll do two things here. Firstly, he appears to racially abuse her. Appears that way. This is the helicopter coming for the Harmon family. Uh, this is the, because in terms of, I don't know if you're aware of this, if you were from Israel, you were called children of God. If you were a Gentile, you were called a dog. It was used by the Jews to refer to themselves and the Gentiles. The woman undoubtedly knew this. So she's standing in front of Jesus, and Jesus is saying to her, uh, You're just a dog. Now, can you imagine what would happen in the church right now? We've got some cultures here, haven't we? If I start and have a go at some of the cultures, let's start with the Welsh. <laughs> okay? We would all be out here. But actually, this is, appears to be nothing more, firstly, than racial abuse. Or is it? Why did Jesus speak this way? William Barclay... Who, you, who I can recommend and not recommend as a commentator, he says this, Ah, 
It's not what you read. He says, the tone is the thing that's important. And it's what defines it. Here, he says, the tone and the look with which the thing he'd said makes a difference. So I just stand in front of Mikhail as an Indian guy, and I look at him from my English position, and I smile. And I go, hmm, Mikhail, you're a dog. <laughs> it's Whatever way you wrap this up, it's racial abuse, whether you smile or not, isn't it, Barclay? Come on. You know, what, means, what we do is we qualify. There's racial abuse, and that comes with seriousness. And there's racial abuse, and it comes with a smile. No, it's still racial abuse, Barclay. What are you on about? Good job he's... Uh, he's the, don't, just please don't. <laughs> Others remind us uh, that there are two different Greek words for the New Testament dogs. <laughs> so we get deep here. Uh, one refers to mongrels that roamed in packs uh, and are fed off the garbage. Is it them? And the other one is dogs that are pets. And trying to salvage Jesus' reputation, (laughs) which is not my responsibility. Uh, But I want to just sort of say, well, what is this here? What is this? Well, it's a household dog, so you're all right. Because we know that because it's the dog under the table, isn't it? So we know that. But certainly, Jesus is erecting another amazing Uh, barrier and you would think at this point if somebody had said to you wouldn't you I want you to help me and I I asked that to Joanne Joanne will you help me and she goes no you're a dog that I would just say something like this Joanne well stuff you I'm just out of here but the woman doesn't (laughs) so you're all right Jan I will help you any time. You're okay. She, she, Joanna, you're all right, refuses to take no for an answer. Cheer! Please encourage Joanna. It's, it's all right laughing, but when you do the snorty laughy thing, it's just, look, there we go. we wait a bit longer we get another one in a minute they always come in threes there's one over here i can hear it but i want to just take you from to to where she goes she she goes on a journey with this that takes her to believe something that you and i are yet to understand and the journey that she goes on is that she she comes to the conclusion or asks the question, what are the leftovers from Jesus like? What are the leftovers from Jesus like? And she comes to this conclusion that a leftover from Jesus, a crumb from Jesus, equals an incredible, magnificent miracle in regard to Jesus. And for some of us, We need to know that this is our heart of our Saviour. This is the heart of our God. And this is what we can actually live on. You can live on a crumb from Jesus because it is an extraordinary kingdom, a miracle. A crumb is worth so much. Now I just want to take you somewhere else. 
I want to say this to you, just so that you understand heaven, so that we get just a theological perspective here. You may smile at the end of this if you wish. If you don't smile, you need to see a doctor. Okay? Theologically, crumbs from heaven equal what? A magnificent miracle. Then Jesus says that he has in heaven for you a what? A banqueting table. <laughs> oh, that's all right. <laughs> that was very Midland. Oh, that's all right. A banqueting table. It was, we'll do this in heaven. We'll do this once more. Just please, please just react. Just react. Theologically, crumbs from Jesus, they equal amazing miracles, right? When you get to heaven, you get to sit at a banqueting table. Oh, come on. Please, whatever you do, don't get too excited about Jesus. It will just do something. Okay, we're nearly at the end. Jesus affirms a great faith. Grants her request immediately. Verse 28. O woman, great is your faith. Be done to you as, as you desire. She was healed instantly. I just want to suggest something to you, interestingly enough, in closing, and then stir you on to pray. It's, it's, it's always interesting that the, the, the disciple, the, the, the stories that we get in the Bible are meant to challenge us. They're not meant for us to just read and go, ooh, it's interesting. Because if you think about this, she says to him, oh woman, great is your faith. You've heard that before because it was a centurion that had it. So here we have in the Bible, Gentiles with great faith. Do you not feel, Gentiles, that we ought to be challenged in regard to this? How... How does Jesus define Gentiles? Oh, they are the ones with great faith. Church? Gentile church? Faith, rise. Let faith come upon us. Let us be the people that we are called by God to be. But I also want you to know this. And you know this story, don't you? This is... Exactly the same as Jacob wrestling with the Lord. I will not let you go till you've blessed me. I won't let you go. Whatever you throw at me, I'm not going to let you go till you've blessed me. You know, so many times, what we can do is let the first barrier, the second barrier, the third barrier, the fourth barrier come in the way. This lady, Jacob says, I will not let you till you bless me. How, how's your heart in regard to that? How was it? How is it? How is it right now? Will you hold on to Jesus' feet, even though he looks down at you and says, appears to say, dog, and then, and then blesses you? Charles Spurgeon says of this, said of this account, the Lord of glory surrendered to the faith of the woman. And he goes on, he says, of course Jesus knew she would pass the test. As God knew that Jacob would pass the test. So what at first may seem cruel on the surface, in both accounts, is actually compassionate, wise and unloving. 
God uses these tests not to destroy the servant, but, but to confirm our faith. I want to close with this question. Two questions. Firstly this. Do you know God's mercy for unfair and unjust circumstances? Do you know mercy that endures in grief? Do you know mercy with the limitations of disability? Do you know mercy in regard to physical pain? Do you know mercy in the path of guilt? Are you undergoing a test in your own life that has caused you to wonder this? Is Jesus ignoring me? Do you think that mercy is for others and and not for you? Do you feel that you are just a dog that attends a church? Well, because you're here right now, that's part of the mercy of God. And I want to encourage you to look again at the amazing Canaanite woman and to trust God with all your heart. He may not choose to answer you as you wish, but there is grace for you and there is mercy for you. What is clear is that he will respond to your faith. He will show yourself. And I want to pray for those people in a while. In fact, in a second. I want to answer this. Have you ever come to that position where you have got to, in your life, where you think, Jesus is my only hope? And have you thrown yourself at his feet yet and cried, help me? Then mercy is there for you too. Mercy is there for you. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, help me. He will. He's rich in mercy. There's enough for us all. I want to ask the musicians to come back if I can. I don't know what song you're going to sing with that one there, guys. If you feel that you're in any of these categories, I want to ask um, cell group leaders whether you can be elders, elders' wives, whether you can be ready to pray. Um, but I just want to go over some of those things. If you feel that, that God is ignoring you, that Jesus has ignored you for a long time, there's mercy for you. Come and be prayed for. Let, let God's rich mercy just come upon you afresh. If you feel that you're living with the pain of unfair and just circumstances, you come and be prayed for. If you feel that you are enduring grief and death, then come on, come forward. Come, and, uh, come down here, there and here. Uh, if you're feeling with, that you are struggling with the limitations of disability, come forward. If you feel that you're in physical pain and may have to live with it for the rest of your life, come forward. If you feel that you're living with guilt, come forward. 
if you feel that you are at the point where the only hope that you have is to throw yourself at Jesus' feet and cry and ask him for mercy, come forward. So I want to do this quite practically. As soon as we start singing, come forward. Okay, right. So the first line, uh, we do that. Okay, other guys. So if you're elders and and uh, and elders' wives and cell group leaders, either past or present, just please uh, come and help. Can I ask you? You are praying that God's mercy would come afresh, that He would come like a mighty river and overwhelm them again uh, with His loving kindness. Shall we stand?